A very warm welcome to Fly to Freedom, an eating disorder recovery podcast that aims to give hope and inspiration to others trapped in the dark prison of an eating disorder. To reach out and take steps to recover and fly to freedom and peace. I'm Julia Trahane, your host, an eating disorder recovery coach who is now living in freedom after 40 years of anorexia, orthorexia and exercise addiction. My mission is to give love and support to anyone who feels ready to start their recovery journey. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm very grateful to you for being here. Please like, follow and rate it to enable me to reach others who need help. Right, let's get on with today's episode. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Flight to Freedom. I am super honoured to have Suzanne Nancy here today. Suzanne Manser, PhD, is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Portland, Oregon. She has specialised in working with people with eating disorders since 1999. She also specialises in working with folks with anxiety. In addition to her work as a therapist, Dr Manser has served as the director of a clinic and instructor at the undergraduate and graduate levels and a board member. She has given numerous invited talks on understanding and treating people with eating disorders. Dr. Mansa is on a mission to help us all accept ourselves. To that end, she writes a blog and has two upcoming books, I Hate You, A Love Letter to My Mother, Healing Paper Cuts, Mother Wounds and Intergenerational Pain, and a guided journal titled I Hate You, A Love Letter to My Mother, a journal for healing the mother wound and transforming your life. Wow. You're a very, very busy woman. Thank I you am. so, so much for coming and being a guest on my podcast. I'm absolutely delighted. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, you are more than welcome. So just to let the viewers know, I'm having a very disorganized day. So anything could happen, um, but <laughs> we're just going to get on with it. So Suzanne, can you tell us a little bit about your story and a bit about your background and why you do what you do. Absolutely. I um, I chose psychology in college uh, as I was uh, sampling various careers and majors because listening to people's stories sounded like the most interesting thing I could do all day. Um, I love reading and it's kind of like that in a way, or it felt like it at the time. Um, so that's why I went towards psychology. And then when I was doing a practicum at a college in Pennsylvania, a group of women on the campus who had created a support group for folks with eating disorders asked for uh, a facilitator, somebody from the Psychological Services Center to come facilitate. My supervisor volunteered to do that, and I just wanted to learn from him. So I went along. Um, knowing nothing about eating disorders. And when I arrived, I listened to these women. And although I've never had an eating disorder, uh, people with eating disorders tend to have similar personality traits. And I shared all of the personality traits with these women. And I felt like they were my tribe. I understood them. I I really connected with them. And so that was the start of, of me becoming a professional who focuses on treating folks with eating disorders. Um, that was almost 24 years ago. It was 24 years ago. Um, and so that's been, that's been my aim ever since. Wow. Um, can we go into a little bit about the personality traits? That's fascinating. I'm guessing um, perfectionism. Absolutely. 
<laughs> uh, people pleasing. Uh huh. Yep. All or nothing mindset. Mm hmm. Who might you be describing? <laughs> Possibly most of my life. <laughs> Me as well. <laughs> Black and white thinking. Yeah. Um. Very lo low self worth. Very high levels of inner critic. It's it's also not wanting to take risks. Um, yeah. being compliant to go with the people pleasing, being very achievement oriented, being more obsessive than not all of that, that kind of goes with the perfectionism as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, people with eating disorders do in general, obviously there will always be exceptions, but in general share this set of characteristics that Co alongside, I'm never sure which comes first, to be honest. I think it all goes back to coping strategies developed in childhood a lot of the time, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, when you look at that set of, of um, characteristics kind of grouped together, you can see that somebody who, <clears throat> who is facing a, a major stressor in their lives uh, and who doesn't have fabulous coping strategies would turn to something like food or trying to fix their body and, and where it would become uh, an obsession or, a, you know, a, a take over their life as opposed to sort of just being a diet or, or something that's not so central to who they are. Yes. And it has the added, I suppose, benefit in the early stages of numbing your emotions. Absolutely. Yeah. That was a big one for me being able to not feel. Huge. I think so many people don't realize that that is a, a big component of why eating disorders stick, why they're yeah. so tenacious, because they are so helpful, I'm putting in quotes, um, in, in allowing people to not have to face the entirety of all of what they're feeling. Yeah. And I mean, I, I know for myself, I certainly didn't know how to process emotion. Right. I had no idea. I wasn't allowed to show emotion as a child. It was punishable. And so when I started restricting and didn't feel my feelings, it that felt like my savior. It felt like I was winning, that I could, I could finally do something right. Yeah. Wow. So one thing I've noticed on your Instagram page is you have done some fantastic work about body neutrality. Thank you. Because obviously in an eating disorder, and though it's not the cause of the eating disorder, but a fixation on some, being able to control something and the body comes along as that, turns into a huge, huge, huge fear of weight gain, hatred of your body, highly critical of everything about your body. So part of the work in recovery is to try and obviously eventually reach a place of body acceptance and body love. But in the early stages, that's virtually impossible to achieve and has to be done in steps. And one of the biggest steps is to reach body neutrality. So can you talk to us a little bit about, first of all, what body neutrality 
isn't because how how is it attached to body image etc mm. so body image is the way that we the way that we see ourselves the way we see our bodies the way we think and feel about our bodies it's our interpretation of our bodies um body neutrality gives us a particular lens to look at our bodies through. So may I, may I talk about what body neutrality is before I talk about what it isn't? Sure. Okay. Um, just because that's how it's showing up in my brain at the moment. So that's, you know, body neutrality is, a uh, a way of relating to our bodies where we're not focused on the appearance of our bodies. The, the appearance of our bodies, our body size is simply not meaningful. And so it doesn't need to be a point of focus. Um, what body neutrality isn't that said is body neutrality isn't saying don't care about what you look like at all. Don't have any opinions about what you look like at all. Stay away from a mirror. Um, body neutrality is simply offering us this perspective where we're reminded that the value of our bodies is not in their appearance. And therefore, while we're going to have opinions about which way our hair looks best or what colors look best on us, um, we're not gonna be focusing on them. They don't become meaningful to us. They don't become the center of our day. And therefore, if we look in the mirror and we don't like how our hair looks or we don't feel good about the way our body looks, we just kind of move on. It's not a big deal. Okay, so it's not saying that you need to be liking what you look like. Absolutely. It's, and, and I wanna um, speak to something that you said a, a few minutes ago, which is, you know, people are trying to get to body love. And I think a lot of people are, but I think for a lot of people that doesn't even necessarily make sense. Um, and so body neutrality is for some people, a, a way station on the way to body positivity or body love. For some people though, it's the final destination. It's a place of simply not, um, not prioritizing the appearance of your body again, because it simply doesn't feel meaningful. And what comes with that is you don't have to love your body. You certainly don't have to hate your body, but you don't have to love your body. You don't have to love how it looks. You can live a very meaningful life without any focus on how your body looks. And that is so much more achievable. Absolutely. So a lot of people use body image as their focus, as kind of like a shield to protect them from the real feelings that they're feeling. And I know we can get really, really curious and dig behind the, say, I'm afraid of gaining weight, why I couldn't live, and this is how I was, by the way, not how I am now. Um, I can't live in a bigger body, I can't, uh, people will judge me and so I've gone from a fear of gaining weight to then a fear of being judged. And then behind that fear of being judged is a fear of not being accepted. And behind that fear of not being accepted 
is a fear of not being good enough. Absolutely. And then behind the fear of not being good enough is a fear of not being loved. And I think that that's what we all ultimately search for. So to me, one of the first things to recognize was that it wasn't really about my body. And so to stop giving myself so much hate and negativity over my body. So can you tell us steps of how body neutrality can start? Absolutely. And I love the way that you frame that. I just want to really reinforce the, the string that you put together that goes back to we're all just looking for love. We all just want to know that we're lovable. Yes. And our society is so loud about the way to be acceptable and lovable is to have this particular kind of body. And so, of course, we turn to that because we, you know, it's screamed into our ears every time we look on social media or watch a show on TV or open a magazine. Um, so I just really appreciate you framing it that way. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. So to, to answer your question about how to start um, practicing body neutrality, I think it starts with just paying attention to what you're focusing on. Um, noticing when you are focusing on being mean to yourself, noticing when you're focusing on judging yourself, noticing when you're focusing on what your body looks like at all. And then working on coming back to remembering that you're just wanting to be loved, having some compassion for yourself, that that's just what you're wanting and moving your focus to anything else really, but ideally something more meaningful than your body. So for example, you know, we might walk by a mirror and sort of catch our reflection and look at ourselves and think, ugh, my hair looks terrible or ugh, my body looks terrible. Or we might catch ourselves grabbing our fat and trying to do a little body checking and see, you know, how big we are. And if we can catch ourselves in, that, in those moments and again, remind ourselves this is just a person who's wanting to be loved, bring some love to ourselves in those moments to soften that hate or loathing that we might be feeling towards ourselves or our bodies, and then move our focus to something more, more helpful or more important. It could be, I mean, it could literally be just starting to sing your favorite song in your head. That's a, a more helpful focus than any sort of judgment on your body. Um, it could be thinking about what you actually do value what is really important to you um, and, you know, thinking about how to connect with or align with your core values in that moment. That's yeah. Really, really great advice. And when you were saying about thinking about what you do value, what came into my head then was that even when I was terrified of my own body and terrified of gaining weight, when I thought about what I valued in other people, it was never what they looked like and it was never about their body size. And so I guess what I'm saying is that I never valued anybody else because of what body they were in. So it doesn't define them. And so therefore my body doesn't define me and it doesn't mean anything about me. Absolutely. That's so important for us to ground ourselves in. We've made so much meaning out of 
out of the, the what we weigh out of our body size and it's completely fabricated um there is no actual meaning in that in a in a valuable way and so mm-hmm. coming back to we have to remind ourselves of that so much because it's so ingrained in us to to worry about or think about our body size and so if we can practice exactly what you just described coming back to remembering that it's not meaningful how how big or small or whatever how lumpy or bumpy whatever we are none of it is meaningful no and i suppose when we were born we loved our bodies completely i mean when you think about how a baby and a toddler I know my own children were transfixed with their bodies, with their hands, with their tummies, poking their tummy buttons in and out. And they loved their bodies and every opportunity they had to run around naked, they would, even when it was totally (laughs) inappropriate, to be honest. (laughs) But we're not born hating ourselves, is what I'm saying. We're not born hating our bodies and we're not born meeting everybody else's needs before our own. So all that comes in, doesn't it? That's all conditioned to us from parents, schools, the TV, diet culture, films. And realistically, I think it's only five, less than 5% of people can fit in, naturally fit into the societal ideals of body size and shape. So the rest of it is just a money-making venture. Exactly. And and a way to oppress people. You know, the thin ideal was um, originated in oppressing people of color to make them other, to make them um, into to, to beings who worked for us. And so when you really trace it all the way back, we can see that the thin ideal has not wasn't even started as a as a beauty thing um but simply as a system of oppression and continues to be wow that's powerful really powerful and we're oppressing ourselves absolutely that's not okay no we need we need to be free as your podcast says. Yes. Oh, well, honestly, it's indescribable, the difference when you are not a slave to an eating disorder. I mean, I get so excited when I think about how different my life is and how much I live now. Mm. And I never lived. I existed. Yeah. But I never lived. That's the difference in my mind between focusing on something that doesn't fulfill you, like your body size or your appearance and, and your actual values, the things that are actually meaningful to you. That's, that's a juicy life. That's a life where you're thriving as opposed to a life where you're just getting by. Yes, absolutely. And also going back to the restricting the feelings, of course, Yes, restricting your food and eating disorders do restrict your feelings, but that's all of them. That's the good feelings too. That's the joy. That's the excitement. That's the happiness. They're all being restricted as well. Yep. So yeah, you now, don't need to just choose. 
yeah, now I get to feel all of them. And wow, so different, so, so different, so amazing. That's fabulous. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we were really looking at different things that we could do to achieve body neutrality. Can you think of or can you share any exercises um, such as mirror work, etc., that we people can use to help themselves take steps to this? Yeah, well, there, there are a few things. Um, mirror work can be a little bit tricky with body neutrality because, again, you're you're trying not to focus on what you look like. And so one thing that I invite people to do is if they, again, kind of like what I was saying before, if they catch themselves spending excessive time in a mirror or um, being mean to themselves as they stand in a mirror and look at their reflections, to uh, check in with themselves about what's actually going on. Again, getting back to the heart of it, getting back to what they're actually needing and wanting and looking for and reminding uh, reminding themselves that it's not to be found in what they look like. Um, so I actually don't do a lot of actual mirror work besides noticing when you're spending more time than is helpful and moving your attention to something else. Um, most of the exercises that I suggest are more uh, cognitive, more just noticing and thinking about. So for example, if you have an exercise program that you do, a lot of people who have some sort of consistent exercise program um, check in or, or um, notice whether the exercise is working or not based on whether it's maintaining their weight or whether they're losing weight. And so this is a great place to check in with yourself about the attitude towards exercise and towards your body and starting to shift from what is exercise doing to my body size to what is exercise doing to my energy levels? What is exercise doing to my lab values if I'm worried about health? Focusing on the things that are um, more inherent to exercise. Same with, with clothing. When you're picking out clothing, a lot of us are thinking about, does this look flattering on my body? Does this flatter this part of my body? And I would suggest that you shift the way that you think about that and think more about, do I like this article of clothing? Do I like this color? Does this make me happy when I look at it? So it's starting to just shift from any focus on how am I presenting my body to society and instead coming back to what would make me feel really good about this? What makes me feel really good about exercise, about clothes, whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And also, I suppose with exercises, am I enjoying doing this? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Do I do this because I want to or because I feel compelled to? And clothes, am I comfortable in this? Does it feel nice on my body? Yeah. We're so focused on seeing ourselves kind of from the outside in the way other people might be viewing us instead of standing solidly inside of ourselves with ourselves, <clears throat> excuse me, and assessing how do we feel? regardless of how anybody else might see us or think about us, how do we feel in this moment? Yes, and that's when we view ourselves how we think other people view us, we don't see ourselves the same way other people see us anyway. Right. Um, invariably, 
we think we're several sizes larger than we are. And we only tend to focus on parts of ourselves that we feel are negative anyway. Absolutely. And other people don't see us that way at all. So, um, we touched earlier on what is behind the pursuit of thinness, what is behind the eating disorder, and going back to looking for love, which is really back at the very basics, the grassroots of it is we all, as human beings, need and want love and connection and a lot of people don't get that in the way that they need and they may not even realize that they didn't receive that in the way that they needed and i know you have recently written a book on the mother wound haven't you i have can you tell us a little bit about that sure um so my mom died in 2020 and she and I had had a, a pretty challenging relationship. We did not have an easy relationship. And after she died, I found myself journaling for eight to 12 hours at a time. I had feelings just gushing out of me and they were not positive feelings. Um, I had really struggled with hating my mom a lot of my life. And were these uh, feelings that you'd repressed before or... They were feelings that I tried not to feel. I didn't want to hate her. You know, mm-hmm. she, she, she wasn't physically abusive. Um, she was trying. Well, I don't know that she was trying, but she, she wasn't intending to hurt me. Um, and I thought I was wrong for hating her. I didn't, I didn't want to hate her. I wanted to love my mom. I wanted to feel bonded to her. Uh, and after she died, when all of this negativity and hate and anger poured out, I was, I was shocked um, I thought I'd, I've been in therapy forever. I had thought I'd done all of that processing already, but what I discovered was, um, again, in all of the processing I had done, all of the self, self acceptance work I had done, there was still this huge piece of the mother wound, the way that she had hurt me simply by disregarding me. It wasn't, again, it wasn't physical abuse. It wasn't sexual abuse. She just disregarded me. She just didn't take me seriously. Um, didn't respect me as a person because I was a kid. And so I grew up feeling like I didn't matter because she treated me like I didn't matter. And, you know, coming back to wanting love, boy, I wanted love from my mom. I wanted to be seen. I wanted to be respected. Um, I wanted to be loved as a, as a separate, complete person. Mm -hmm. And it was that, a, the feeling of I didn't matter that I grew up with um, and the, the yearning and craving to matter. I, I just wanted to matter to her. And that I think was a big part of what set me up with all of those personality traits that we were talking about before. I was on a mission. I, you know, I am an obsessive person. I am an achievement oriented person. I'm going to get my goal done. Um, I don't like taking risks. And I'm very people pleasy because 
or I was very people pleasy because again, I wanted to matter. And I found as a kid that when I smiled at people and told them that they were wonderful and, you know, took care of them, they smiled back at me and told me I was great. And I felt like I mattered for a minute. I felt like somebody maybe had some love for me for a minute. You needed to be needed. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that, you know, that was sort of the basis for my childhood and for who I became. I became a, a perfectionistic people pleaser. Um, and then eventually I figured out how to, how to shift and how to change and how to create a more authentic life based on my values, not, not just trying to matter to my mom or, or to anybody actually. I think that's such a common story, isn't it? That, and thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Um, that not even deliberately, but I mean, obviously sometimes there is deliberate, but a lot of the time our parents are dealing with their own limiting beliefs and their own conditioning. And we simply are not getting the needs met that we have as children. Absolutely. And so, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, so we change tack because at, at all costs, a child needs to get their needs met. And so they find ways of getting them met. And that can be acting out or people pleasing. I know I people pleased so much. I I needed to be needed. That was how I got my needs met, was by denying them all myself <laughs> and meeting everybody else's. And that gave me partly the love that I have been searching for. But I think the thing that I didn't realize at all until partway through my recovery was that the biggest need of being loved, that there was only one person that could really meet that need. And that was myself. Yeah. And once you do start to love yourself and who you are and give yourself what you've been searching for your whole life, everything changes. Everything gets so much easier. And you start to feel complete. And if I may, when I was doing my writing and my thinking for my book, I was doing a lot of thinking about my mother's childhood. And I discovered our, our intergenerational pain, our lineage of, of trauma, which was she also had been shown that she didn't matter. She was also disregarded by her parents in a similar way. And she dealt with it. I only discovered after her death by developing an eating disorder. In part, she became an alcoholic. She also had an eating disorder. And um, as a kid, I saw that she didn't eat and it sort of didn't, didn't click. Um, she mm -hmm. ate about one meal a day and I, she didn't say much. I only, after her death, heard from my dad how much she had hated her body and saw herself as fat. And she was a very petite woman. Um, and so she was till the end, till she died in her seventies, trying to be small enough to be acceptable and loved. That's so sad. Yeah. So sad because 
actually heard a an incredible podcast actually um this woman had been had the privilege of spending a lot of time with people who were dying mm. and she said the five regrets of the dying and not a single one of them said they wished they'd lived in a smaller body it was all about being more authentic and meeting their own needs none of it was to do with what they looked like or the number on the scales or the number in their clothes yeah lots to think about well is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners today you know, I just really want to spread this message that we are acceptable and lovable. We don't have to change anything about ourselves at all. We certainly don't have to change our body size. We don't even have to love our bodies. We are as human beings. That is just part of the deal. We're acceptable and lovable. And I'm hoping that everybody who is on the journey to, to find that is able to find that out for themselves. Thank you. That's beautiful. And how can people get hold of your book or work with you? Um, going to my website is probably the, the best way to get book information and my information, which is suzannemanserphd.com. Okay, awesome. I will also include that in the show notes. And I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much. It's been amazing chatting to you. Julia, thank and you for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. Um, thank you so much to my listeners and I will see you next week. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do remember to give me a follow and a five-star rating. This will enable me to reach more people that need help. If you would like to talk to me about how to work with me and you're ready to take the next step, just check out my website at juliatrahane.com. Thank you for listening. I'm so grateful.